Colossians chapter 4, just two verses, 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. And the Father, we pray that you would reveal this scripture to us. May we see things here that need to be applied. We pray, Lord, that you would make that application. Speak to our hearts. Glorify yourself through this scripture, through our understanding and application of the scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me start with an illustration. I know very little about boxing. And that sort of satisfies me just fine, suits me just fine. But I have heard of the boxer's use of the one-two combination. If I understand it correctly, if the boxer is able to make a jab with his right hand and maybe the other person defends it or maybe that jab gets through and touches the guy's chin, if he can bring a second punch from the left hand, then he's going to score points. And it seems logical to me, if at that point he could bring a third punch to the face of that individual, then it's going to do some damage. Brother Fulton brought a Sunday school lesson last week uh, on Christian lights. How we as Christians are lights for our Savior and we need to be all that we can possibly be. And at least to my way of thinking, I don't know if anybody agreed or not, but to my way of thinking, uh, there was a second message dealing with the same sort of theme in the evening. One, two, prutch. For some reason or other, uh, my, my trainer, the Holy Spirit, has led me back to that subject once again. In some of my additional reading, I ran across the word balance. Christian balance. And I think that's essentially what you were talking about. Proper Christian balance. And then there was a note in my uh, sermon ideas from Colossians chapter 4, verse number 6. Let your speech be all the way with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Well then, as I looked at the context, verse number 5 suggested that Christian balance once again. It's not enough just to preach the truth. It's not enough to rebuke sin. It's not enough to exhort other people to move on with the Lord. In properly balancing our talk, even gracious speech needs to be, what's the word? Balanced with walking in wisdom. Toward them that are without. It's not just a matter of words. It's a matter of life. They go together. No one wants to hear our witness for Christ. If we look like and we smell like a lost person. No one will listen to our gospel. If everyone sees that we are mean. Angry. Proud. Selfish people. There needs to be a balance. All I'm going to do this evening is open up these two scriptures and let the Holy Spirit uh, lead you where he chooses you to go. 
We will start with a wise walk before them who are without. Obviously, we all live our lives in and among people who are not Christians. And the term that Paul uses here to describe these non-Christians, in this particular case, in this verse, is they are without. They are without. If you think about it, those non-believers are without in several ways. Paul was probably using the term to suggest that they are without in the sense of being, they are outside. They are not members of one of the Lord's churches where they can fellowship and grow, hearing the word of God. But that isn't as significant as the fact that they are outside Christ, who is the key of every good thing. They are outside. They are without. In another epistle, Paul reminds us, Wherefore remember that ye, you, in times past, Gentiles in the flesh, were at that time without Christ. You were without Christ. You were outside Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2 and verse number 12. Lost people are not only outside Christ and without God, but more specifically, they lack the God, they lack the Lord's grace. They lack salvation. They lack eternal life. They lack hope. That could and that should disturb them if they understand what it's all about. And of course, that takes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But they should be disturbed. Monday, I got a note from the manufacturer of the car that I drive. It uh, told me that they were extending the warranty over a particular part of my car because it had proven to be defective in a few vehicles, so they were just extending the warranty. And there was a little note that said, cut this out, put it with your paperwork in your glove compartment. I don't think they said glove compartment, but uh, uh, put it with all of the other papers with your car, which I did. And as I was doing so, I was looking through those papers, and I couldn't find my insurance card. I couldn't find the statement that I was properly insured. I didn't exactly panic, but I uh, telephoned my insurer, and I asked, uh, uh, am I insured? And they said, yes, you are. So I asked for another card to stick in with all the rest of the papers that I had. But I was without proof of insurance. That could have been problematic if I was a bad driver and was constantly getting stopped for speeding and that sort of thing, running through stop signs, that sort of thing. If I didn't have proof of insurance, it could have uh, been rather costly. To be without proof of insurance might be a problem, but it is nothing to be compared to without Christ. And like my insurance agent, you and I are supposed to be in the business of bringing those who are without within. That's our job. We represent Christ as ambassadors. Part of that ministry of ours is to walk in wisdom. 
before those people who are out there without. I like the Greek word that Paul uses here. Although there's nothing special about it, I just like it. It is the word Sophia. Generally, the word Sophia doesn't suggest any specialized wisdom. Walk in wisdom, Sophia. Doesn't particularly say spiritual wisdom or secular wisdom. But I think we can conclude that when Paul is using it here, he's wanting us to walk in spiritual wisdom. He's not talking about religious bribery to bring the lost to Christ. He's not talking about us deceiving people, lying to people, hiding what we believe, sucking them in and then hitting them later with what Christianity is all about. That might be the wisdom that some people use, but that's not Paul's wisdom, and we're certainly not going to do that. I think, rather, Paul is reaching back into the book of Proverbs, early chapters, 1, 2, 3, and 4, where the Lord himself is described as wisdom. Solomon, like the evangelist who says that Christ is everything, says Wisdom is the principal thing. Get wisdom. Mm -hmm. There are many other verses, but he says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? Turn ye at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. Again, Proverbs chapter 1. Where is wisdom when she pleads her case? She is without where the fools are. How long are you going to stay out here? Come in. I will pour my spirit upon you. It takes spirit-directed wisdom to speak effectively to the lost. And it takes spirit-directed walk before their eyes to suggest that there is value in listening to what we have to say about Christ. If we're just like they are, then what point is there? Redeeming the time, Paul says. That is an example of practical wisdom. This is certainly nothing to be proud of. But the older I get, and that seems to take place constantly, the older I get, the more focused I am on the Lord. The more I think about Him, the more often I pray throughout the day. I, I, I yearn for His glory. I am more and more earnest about uh, sharing Christ with others as I see the day approaching, shall we say, as I age. It's not that Back in my 20s and 30s, I wasn't preaching Christ and wasn't trying to establish churches for his glory. But in my service back then, if something didn't get done, there was the satanic hint, well, you can take care of that tomorrow. You know, I don't have quite as many tomorrows as yeah. I used to have. And uh, so it helps me to stay focused, or in Paul's terminology here, to redeem the time. Not much more time left. I shouldn't say that. 
I expect to, unless the Lord comes, another 20 or 25 years. But relatively speaking, a lot of water's gone under that bridge already. Redeeming the time is an interesting phrase. It comes up several times in the Word of God in different forms. Moses suggests it in Psalm 90. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Notice the connection between counting the days and wisdom once again. Among other scriptures, Paul repeats himself almost verbatim in Ephesians 5. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. What is it to redeem time? It is essentially to put it to good use. Use it to its fullest extent. I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago. If I didn't, fine. Um, For the last uh, month and a half, whenever I've gone into my credit union, the teller has approached me and said, Have you heard? We are selling CDs right now for 5%. 5%. You're not going to find a better deal anywhere than that. The offer expires at the end of the month. Let's say that I have $1,000 in my checking account. The money is there. It's available to be used to pay the bills that I have. I could, just uh, with a couple of clicks on my computer, move that $1,000 to my savings account, where it would earn a minuscule bit of interest. Tiny, tiny. So I don't do that very often. There's a little bit in there, but not very much. But if I redeemed their offer, and I put that $1,000 in a certificate of deposit, a CD, then it would gain much more interest. See what I'm saying? In this case, redeem or redeeming refers to putting it to good use. And when Paul says redeem the time, he is saying, don't waste your opportunities. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, was it before or after he said, you are lights in this world? also said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Paul says much the same thing in regard to time. Lay it up in heaven. Use it for the Lord's glory. He recognizes all your service, all your labor, all of the time that you spend in his service. Paul says, redeeming the time for the days are short and the days are evil. Along with Christian walking comes Christian talking. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. This is not important, but just for fun. Notice that the word always doesn't have the letter S after it, the way we always use the word always. 
English experts tell me that always does not need an S to be perfectly proper. And in fact, if you do the uh, uh, vocabulary math, it, it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't need to be there. should not be there. But there's no hard and fast rule one way or the other. You can have an S on always or not an S on always. Let's say that's just for fun. The Bible uses always 59 times. And it uses always 23 times. So even in the Word of God, it doesn't matter. And I actually went to my commentaries and said, what do you think about this, Gil, and you other people? And nobody said, had a word to say about always or always. Not one of them. As I say, just for fun. Acts 10.2 tells us that Cornelius was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave alms to the people and prayed to God always. Not always. Since none of my commentaries told me otherwise, I'm just going to use always whenever I choose to. Either way, Paul is essentially telling us never to let the communication of our mouths be without graciousness. Always, always with grace. Always permit your speech to be filled with grace. And what is grace? Unmerited favor. What is the ultimate source of grace? It is the Lord. Please notice that unlike verse number 5, verse number 6 is somewhat passive. Walk in wisdom. You do that. And then let your speech always be with grace. Let or permit your speech to be seasoned with salt, that she may know how you ought to answer every man. If we want our speech to be gracious, it is important that we yield ourselves to the leadership of the Lord. If we strive to be gracious, we're not going to do a very good job. But when we let the Lord be gracious through us, that changes everything. There are many Christians who, even in their witnessing, are quick to condemn Harsh criticism. It is unscriptural. It is unchristian. I'm not saying that we have to ignore evil and that we should never point out wickedness. I'm not saying that. In order for a person to be saved, he must understand that he's a sinner. Yes. And that requires some condemnation. But the question is, how are we going to tell him that? What manner is it going to be done. In what manner? Several times over the last month, I've heard quoted the words of one of our former church members, which were spoken to a lost man. The stranger had said something which was apparently not true. Our church member called his hand on him, on, on what he said, and uh, essentially said that uh, he was lying. But it was not so much what he said as it was in how he said it. It was said in an unkind, unchristian manner. We need to go back to the day of our own conversion. 
How did the Lord come to us? Yes, the Holy Spirit came along, and if your testimony is similar to mine, He made me miserable. He crushed me. But it was with a glorious purpose, yes. infused with superlative grace, Knowing what he was going to accomplish, his condemnation was conveyed to me in love. That is the same sort of way we are to represent him. If we want to be profitable in our conversation with that man or, or that woman who is without, metaphorically, we need to season our conversation with salt. I wonder how many seasonings were available to the average housewife in Paul's day. I don't know how to look that up. There were various spices available. There were scents available. But the Bible indicates that many of them were very valuable and thus were carefully dispensed. Many of them were used like currency, not like curry or coriander or cayenne. We know for sure that they did not have sugar as we have sugar today. And did you know that the word pepper is not found in the Bible? No pepper in the Bible. They had salt. Salt was the common seasoning. Job asked the question in chapter 6, Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? No way. And then he immediately spoke of uh, egg whites. Is there any taste in the white of an egg? Come on, give me some salt and pepper before I eat that stuff. But salt is more than a seasoning. It had, has medicinal purposes. It has curative purposes. Judy and I went home on Sunday night and turned the TV on and we watched uh, a silly TV show where the bad guy drank from the same poisoned cup that he used to kill his victim. And that's to throw the detectives off. off killed her. Then he immediately drank a great big glass of salt water and uh, that tended to flush his system out and he was not poisoned. Salt can be used to, to preserve food, to tan hides, to bleach colors out of things, and to do other good things. Tuesday, or Monday, Monday, uh, I helped Judy take some huckleberries that were given to her and we got down the ice cream machine and we put ice in the thing and we, we put the huckleberries in there and the whole milk and all of that stuff and salt in with the ice. Salt's used for all sorts of good things including ice cream. But if I have to say I think it's best used as a seasoning. As a seasoning. As the Lord's ambassadors, we must. We must do our best to give our gospel a pleasant taste to the mouths of those who are without. 
I'm not saying that we should hire distort the truth, but with each individual case, we must try our best to make it tasty. But there's something else, perhaps even more important. When it came to Israel's offerings, those of praise and thanksgiving in particular, not the sin offerings, when it came to the free will offerings of Israel, Leviticus 2.13 says, Every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. I should do this more often than I do, but every presentation of Christ, every witness for him, every grace-filled conversation should be shared with others as a thank offering, what we have received. We should be motivated by thanksgiving in our presentation of gospel truth. And even generally, our speech should be saturated with the salt of prayer and sacrifice. I was thinking about this message on Monday afternoon into Tuesday. I came with an outline which I eventually cast aside. I was going to deal with the wise talk, the purchased moments, the gracious speech, and the salty seasoning, concluding with oughtful answers, that you may know how you ought to answer every man, and because of that reason, I threw, threw it out. We're not using that outline. Doesn't make any sense. Our wise talk, which makes our behavior different from those who are without, should raise a question or two. Why is this person different? Our earnest attempt to make a few days in this world profitable should uh, cause the lost to be curious. And certainly our attempt to witness of grace and with grace should provoke questions from those who do not understand us. How important it is to know how we ought to answer every man. You might be thinking that Paul is speaking about finding answers to the questions they will ask. Preparing ourselves ahead of time for they might ask this, they might ask that. Please notice that this is not what Paul is talking about. As important, or perhaps even more important than what we answer, once again, is the manner in which we answer. Seasoned with salt, infused with grace. Sometimes we just have to say, I don't know the answer. That's perfectly all right. I've attended and successfully passed Bible college courses in personal evangelism. I've gone to a few Sword of the Lord conferences. And now after being in the ministry for more than 50 years, I believe that the best preparation for serving the Lord, witnessing, preaching the gospel, is drawing nigh unto the Lord himself. Being filled with grace is the best preparation for sharing grace and ministering the word of grace. Paul was telling the saints in Colossae, and thus telling us as well, effective evangelism requires the blending 
of the gospel message with the life of the messenger. Both are important. To have one without the, without the other is going to be a failure. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be all away with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man.